0: Fucking night
1: on my life And wherever it takes me I'm down the ride Baby, don't you know I'm good? Yeah, I'm feeling alright So that was David Guetta and Bebe Reha, I think? That's how you pronounce it? Uh, it is the number 57th top music video in the world right now um, And it's, uh, it's a good bop But also it's a remix or reincarnation I didn't really have the words for it Uh, of uh, Blue WD, which uh, everyone growing up in the early 2000s remembers. And I always wondered, uh, you know, what this trend was. Definitely heard a bunch of other remixed songs uh, seep its way into popular culture. And it turns out that there's a name for it, and it's called Interpolations.
0: And I think that, like, those remixes seem to be one of those things that's really taking off. I know TikTok, we talk a lot about on The Vergecast, TikTok is kind of this big... Engine for for music right now, it's it's driving music in a way, maybe more so than Spotify. Even is that just like a fad? Is that because you know, everybody's got TikTok and the fancy new tools, or is this just like kind of a new future? We're just going to be getting more and more remixes.
1: Remix of culture and especially the use of interpolations is at an all time high. We're seeing more new music mashed up with older music than we have in the last decade. I've done some reporting that shows that interpolations have, in fact, doubled in the last five years on Billboard's year-end Hot 100. You asked me, is this here to stay? I think all of culture is a fad, right? (laughs) Like, at some point, we're all going to be wearing moon boots again. I'm so excited. And so, at some point, remixes are not going to be cool, but... Is this here for a minute? For sure, because TikTok is the biggest, most important social network at the moment, and it's going to have staying power for how long? I don't know. The cycles of power and staying power within social media seem to be increasing in time, and so I think it's going to be around for a minute. I just if you ask me what's happening in 50 years, I don't know. I, like I said, I'm going to be wearing moon boots on the moon and be looking great. Making music in ways I can't even imagine. Thank you.
0: Well, you talked about in interpolations. How is that different than remixes? Like, how, how do we define
1: those two? Sure. If you want to use someone else's song, there are roughly three things that you can do. One is you can make a cover of a song, which is basically, you know, redoing all of the melody and the lyrics with maybe slight variation, but staying really close to the original. You could sample a song where you actually take the original recording and you put it into a new song and you change the context so you're not singing the same lyrics throughout the entire thing, but you're using the actual recording itself. The last thing you can do is you can interpolate a song, which is that you're going to borrow a musical element from another song. It could be a melody. It could be a lyric. It could be a big part of the vibe in production. And you're going to update it into a new song. And so this has become extremely popular recently. Young Gravy has a song called Betty Get Money. Never take a L no more. Never take a damn thing which interpolates Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give It Up. Never gonna give you up, never gonna let you down. Which is great, because if you play that, then I've just Rickrolled all of your listeners. Yes! Lato is a great example. Her song Big Energy, one of the most fun songs of the last couple of years, uses both a sample of the Tom, Tom Club <laughs> and interpolates Mariah Carey's fantasy. <laughs> Which had used the same sample, but because Lotto uses some of Mariah Carey's lyric, she's interpolating Mariah Carey's version of the Tom Tom Club.
0: Yeah, bitch, I a I you got beat,
1: That's a very popular interpolation. There's a new interpolation of the song Blue Abba Di Da that David Guetta has out. There is even a song by Rita Ora which interpolates the Beverly Hills cop theme. It's a very common thing right now that people are taking old hits that are still in the cultural memory, still interesting, but maybe have faded just a little bit, and then updating them and bringing them back, because frankly, there's no better hook than uh, a song that's already hooked you before, so people (laughs) like to update them. It's kind of like the Hollywood strategy of rebooting everything. And it all has to do with the cost of marketing. Marketing a new film is extremely expensive. People want to go see things that are familiar, and it's easier to market something that is already in the popular consciousness, and so I think the same thing is true of music. There is more competition in music today than there ever has been before. The number of songs released daily a few years ago was 60,000 songs on Spotify. And so I don't even know what the number is updated to today, but you have so much competition when you're putting a song out. So maybe if it connects to another major hit, you have a better chance of being remembered.
0: Are the studios doing this intentionally? Is this just the artist being like, I want people to listen to my song, which I totally get. Where is the, the the kind of drive coming from to do this?
1: I think it's bi-directional. Mm-hmm. Clearly, listeners like this music because it's performing very well on Billboard. People are choosing to go and listen to it. Radio DJs are continuing to play this music because it's working. At the same time, music publishers, music publishers are the people that own the songwriting credit, mm-hmm. which is the part that gets interpolated. Music publishers are actively pitching the idea of interpolations two major artists to continue the lifetime value of their catalog of music. So I spoke recently with Hypnosis Sounds and Primary Wave, two of the biggest financially backed music publishers. These are the people who are buying up old catalogs, like paying sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars for old catalogs. They believe that it's a stable financial asset because they can predict streaming revenue off of these songs for a number of years, and they think that they're going to make money back off of it. And they're also trying to find new markets and new life for that music. They're doing it through biopics. They're doing it through docs. They're getting people to cover those songs, all which increase the value of that catalog. But they're also actively pitching interpolations. They they literally go through their list of songs, make lists, sometimes even produce ideas for songs that then turn into hits that get played on the radio because through the label system they're able to pitch those ideas they get them to a major artist and they get remade one of my favorite examples of this kind of a thing happening was the song higher love not talking about steve winwood i'm talking about kygo taking a bonus track from whitney houston covering that song and then updating it with contemporary production This is one of those cases where a music catalog company helped facilitate the revival of this body of work. And I think it's an amazing song. I love the new version.
0: So these these studios who are buying all of these catalogs because they want this predictable revenue, because, like, I guess music, like, all forms of entertainment is not predictable in its revenue. Is this kind of a newer thing in music? Have they been doing this a while, this predictability play?
1: Well, certainly streaming has changed how publishers perceive the lifetime value of their work. Music catalogs have always been valuable, and people have made a lot of money off of legacy artists and owning that publishing. That's not new. There's a apocryphal story about Paul McCartney telling Michael Jackson, hey, it's a really good idea to own publishing. Like, There's a lot of value in it. And Michael Jackson went behind his back and bought the Beatles catalog. And (laughs) Paul was not so happy about that. So there's always been value in it. What has changed is that streaming provides more predictable revenues. You can see how your revenues are changing literally, you know, day by day, and previously you would have had to rely on physical retailers and of course if you have a legacy catalog, maintaining shelf space in a physical location is more challenging uh, when so much new music is being released. On streaming, fandoms are able to continue listening. If you're a boomer and you love boomer music, you're going to keep listening to that on Spotify. You know, if you're from the greatest generation and you really love listening to the old classics of pop music, you probably couldn't find them at Best Buy today, but if that's your thing, you can find playlists, you can find the music, you can be engaged with it on streaming in a way that provides some predictability now. And so it's not hard to build out financial forecasts of this is how much money this artist is making over streaming year over year. Is it growing? Is it declining? And you can predict what those the revenues might be, which is all predicated on listener behavior is going to be the same in the future as it is today. And we don't know about that.
0: But you've got these companies who are going, they're buying this music and they're saying, OK, I know. I can predict this. And then I also know I can get somebody to go do an inter- interpolation. I can go have a whole bunch of, let's slow it down so it'll look sound great on a movie trailer to know <laughs> just how dramatic it is.
1: If you want to be crass and think about music as a marketplace, listeners have to want this kind of music. In the 60s, the worst thing you could possibly do was to sell out and work with a brand. And now it's like if you're not working with a brand, you're not a real artist. So ideas around this in culture are going to change. But listeners are definitely tuning into this music and it's working. And and, and so I think you see the suppliers of this music are recognizing, okay, we need to figure out how to supply more of this and do it well. All of the publishers I've spoken with work very hard to maintain high quality. Now, that obviously is extremely subjective, but they're not just letting their catalog out there willy-nilly saying, hey, go cover this song, do whatever you want with it. They're trying to connect old songs with new artists where there is a a really strong resonant connection that fans are going to love. They're getting approvals on the songs, the usages, et cetera, et cetera. And Hypnosis Sounds, for example, told me over email that they usually tell the artist who did the recording originally that this is going to happen even when they don't need to, because a lot of these deals are like these publishers just own all of it. So they don't need to get artist's permission. In some cases they do, but they do so anyway because you don't want to mess with these legacies, right? If you're going to use old IP, don't mess it up because it's actually going to potentially hurt the entire value of the overall catalog. So I think people (laughs) are trying to do this intelligently and do it in a way that builds value rather than dilutes it. So the publisher pitching part of it is definitely important, but I think it's just one part of The marketplace of how we are listening to old hits in new ways
0: is there an end date for this kind of business model where they they buy the catalogs they put them on streaming and then they work with a lot of artists and stuff to do remixes to do interpolations is there an end date to that a a point where like there just aren't any more artists who can do these songs (laughs) (laughs) or there aren't any more artists who you can buy the catalogs from
1: Pop is always churning over, so there will always be new acts coming along. But there are a couple of end dates. One, you have to have a fandom. You know, not a lot of people are currently buying, say, John Philip Sousa's music, who was one of the biggest pop stars of the 19th century. It's just me. Oh yeah, okay, that's awesome. I mean, if people still play the Sousaphone, that's awesome. But like, horn music from that era is not very popular today. We might hear it in marching bands, etc. But generally. That's not driving pop music. You also have copyright expirations. So at some point, all work will enter the public domain. Mm-hmm. But that is a long period of time, many generations. And I think you're going to see a lot of music publishers pursuing Disney's strategy, which is maintaining the lifetime of your intellectual property and trying to constantly reignite it so that the fandom for that thing grows and at least sustains an ongoing business for each of these mini artist brands.
0: And when all else fails, they will go petition the government to make sure they can hold Mickey Mouse forever. (laughs) Do you think we'll see the music labels doing that as well?
1: In the music community, there's probably a mixture of what people want. Some people want, like, let me sample anything. I want to pay. Certainly the people who own the intellectual property are working to maintain the lifetime value of that in the longest possible way that they can. (laughs) And so certainly... I know for a fact there are labels that don't want to believe in, for example, fair use because they would prefer that in every case people pay for any instance of recognizing that music, which is why we see an increase in music docs that are actually like owned and operated by the artist. Those are not docs. Those (laughs) that is artist propaganda. They can be fun. You should watch them. Enjoy them. That's totally fine. But that's not a documentary. But so many music docs today are sold as a doc when actually it is a like someone with complete creative control about how they are being represented.
0: Is there any kind of music trend that you're seeing right now that you think That's the one. That's the future of music. Because a lot of these we've talked about, you're like, you know what? This is going to be part of the future. This is in the fabric of the future of music. Is there any that's like just stand out to you?
1: I'm not going to put my Oracle hat on for a very specific reason, which is that I think music is one of the fastest moving media format that the culture around music evolves so quickly. Every time people want to say all pop music sounds the same, it's like, just listen to what pop music sounded like five years ago it does not sound the same. It updates and changes. It's very chameleonic. I can't tell you the combination of how pop music is going to sound, how it's going to be created, and how technology is going to inform it, because I think it's going to shift every single year, even when we get to the point where AI is going to perfectly recreate a song if and when that happens and create new, interesting music. Humans are still going to participate in music in wild and creative ways that I can't even possibly imagine. It's all going to happen so fast that I just would feel irresponsible to pinpoint, like, this is the thing that's going <laughs> to be around for the next hundred years. I mean, again, I love the sousaphone, but it's got a very particular place. At one point, it was very, very popular. You know, it's like it's just all going to change.
0: All of these interpolations, all of these remixes, are we just kind of... I don't know if it's doomed is the right word. They're they are absolute bops, but are we are we gonna just be in this loop, this endless loop of recall?
1: We definitely seem to be living in the greatest era of nostalgia, and that is reflected, I think, in all of our media, and it particularly is true in popular music interpolations are on the rise it seems like every year there's a new throwback to a previous generation we are very much into the 80s and disco right now one of the biggest albums of the last couple of years was Dua Lipa's Future Nostalgia and it is an update to the disco sound are i think in a nostalgia loop i maintain that i think the ideas around pop culture and what's going to be interesting will change and that at some point nostalgia will be frowned upon but we are in it for a minute there's no doubt about that I think every musician secretly hopes for the moment where actually what's going to happen is we're going to go to the most avant-garde, weird thing that's ever been created. And, you know, we, we lean on artists like Bjork and other folks to to help push those sort of boundaries and help change our understanding of what music can sound like. It's always going to be a push and a pull.
0: Ah, oh, I love it. All right. Well, thank you, Charlie, so much for, for taking the time to talk to us and educate me about music and all the artists that I've never heard of until
1: today. Thank you for chatting.
0: All right, that's it for The Vergecast today. Thanks for listening. You can find Charlie's podcast, Switched on Pop, anywhere you get podcasts. And this is the first episode of our Future of Music series, which will be every Monday for the next three weeks. In the meantime, you should check out Verge.com. We've got a new look, tons of cool articles, and we're here to talk about the future of everything else, including music. This show is produced by Andrew Marino and Liam James. Nori Donovan is our executive producer, and Brooke Minters is our editorial director of audio. The Vergecast is a Verge production and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. If you have thoughts, feedback, feelings, mixtapes, you can always email vergecast at theverge.com. Or you can call us on our Vergecast hotline at 866-VERGE-11. David will be back on Wednesday to talk about TikTok search, your iPhone 14 questions, and a whole lot more. See you then. Rock and roll.